These verses describe the raising of Lazarus. But I want us to focus this morning on the person of Christ. It's really less about Lazarus and more about Jesus. And I see five things to notice about Jesus. First, I want you to consider the presence of Christ. Verse 38 says, When then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And that Jesus came to the tomb, to the exact place where Lazarus was buried, shows just how present he is in our lives. That he was deeply moved likewise shows how he enters our grief and even confronts our great enemy, death. There are two kinds of death, biblically, physical and spiritual. Both are the consequence of sin. Ever since the fall, when humanity turned from God, death has marked and marred our lives. We live in a fallen world where death is the expected, inevitable norm. As someone once said that the grave unearths our view of God. The grave unearths our view of God. To be faced with death is to long for something better and to look for God for answers. When tragedy strikes, we long to know where, where is God and why did He allow this? That was Martha and Mary, remember? They each said to Christ, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, in, in the moments of their deep loss, they equated the presence of death to the absence of God. Their complaint, which hit so close to home, was that Jesus seemed distant when they needed him most. But nothing could be more untrue. Jesus knew Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. He knew the full scope of their situation and what he would do about it. The word translated, deeply moved. Is, is insightful. I think it's worth noting. It conveys uh, anger and indignation. Jesus is angry as he stands before the tomb. He was angry back in verse 33 where we're told that he was deeply moved. When he saw the people weep and, and he wept with them, angry not at them for weeping, but angered by the cause of their weeping. He is outraged, Jesus is, at the presence of death in our fallen world. He hates what sin has done. Death is an unwelcome intruder, and what we see here in these verses before the tomb, we see Jesus squaring off with the enemy. Scholars say that the closest English equivalent to those words deeply moved is probably the word snorted. But it sounds weird, right, to say he snorted a few times. Deeply moved, but, but the picture is like a horse snorting at the gate before bursting out onto the track. In other words, Jesus... I think it's safe to say Jesus is getting his game face on. 
as if he's entering the ring or stepping onto the battlefield. Calvin says, Christ does not approach the tomb as an idle spectator, but as a champion preparing for battle. I think if we were to to lay a soundtrack over this scene, we'd probably choose something from Rocky or Braveheart or even the Gladiator. The point is that Jesus so loved Martha and Mary, he came not just to comfort them. He did come to comfort them, but not just to comfort them, also to confront this death that was scaring them to death. And consider also the promise of Christ. Jesus commands the stone to be removed, to which Martha says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been dead four days. You've got to love Martha. I mean that. I'm so encouraged by Martha as we see her in the Gospels and how we are so much like her. How sometimes, even, even here in this scene, how sometimes we feel the need to teach God, don't we? We feel the need to clue him in on the details. We feel the need to remind him of the specifics of the situation, all the while forgetting the promise of Christ. Uh, Lord, in case you may have forgotten, uh, uh, Lord, he's been in that tomb for four days. And if we remove the stone, I'm just saying, Lord, if we remove the stone, it's going to smell really bad. You see, Martha was expecting the stench of death. Jesus had promised the aroma of life. She was expecting decomposition. He had promised recomposition. She was thinking about what is. He was thinking about what will be. She focused on the grave. He was fixed on glory. And did I not tell you, he reminds her, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. If you believed. Not that the miracle depended on her faith, not at all. That's not what he's saying. Jesus was going to raise Lazarus regardless. He was going to demonstrate his glory, the glory of God, whether Martha believed it or not. In fact, everyone there, everyone present would soon witness his glory, but only those who believed would see the fullness of God reflected in it. And Jesus didn't want Martha to miss it. And sometimes we do that with Christ's promises, don't we? We miss the glory of them. We miss the glory revealed in them. We allow secondary matters to distract us from what really matters. In any given circumstance, in any given situation, we can either fixate on our perceived problems or focus on Christ's promise. 
But we can't do both. You can't fixate on your problems and focus on Christ at the same time. It's one or the other, and Jesus wants us to see through the eyes of faith the glory of God at work in our lives. Perhaps, especially when all the odds seem stacked against us. Third, consider the prayer of Christ. Jesus lifted his eyes and prayed, verses 41 and 42. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me that they may believe that you sent me. Now, what's Jesus praying for here? Anyone, what's he praying for here? Say it louder. Belief. Belief, exactly. He's praying for faith. At first, he gives thanks. He thanks God. I want you to see that. I think it serves as a great example to us to begin our prayers with thanksgiving. And then he prays for faith. He prays for the people. He prays for their faith. And by extension for ours, he wants us to know that God is aware of our, of our plight. That God is involved in our lives. And in fact, God has sent his son to bring us life. And this makes all the difference. To believe that Jesus was sent by God changes everything, right? It means he's more than a historical figure. He's more than a good teacher. He's more, far more than just the founder of Christianity. It means he is the Christ. He is our Savior. He is our sinless substitute who bore our sins to to bring us to God. He is the divine Son of God, sent by God, given in love to rescue us from sin and death. On the cross, he died in our place, and from the tomb he rose again so that we might live in him. And here in John 11, listen, he, he raises the dead and prays for the living so that we might believe that he has come from God. That's his prayer. And consider the power of Christ. When he had finished praying, verse 43 says, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Although I imagine it was much more fierce than that. Can you imagine being there? I imagine the crowd went from mixed chatter, maybe something like how, how in those moments before the service begins, there's just some mixed chatter going on in the room here. 
I imagine the crowd went from mixed chatter to hushed whispers as Jesus took his position before the tomb. And then silence. No, it's like the silence that, that I think maybe befalls a crowd just before something big is about to happen. You know what I mean? No one moved, perhaps. No one spoke. Only Christ's impassioned prayer rippled through the crowds. And then suddenly, a shout. The divine voice bellows, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out. Verse 44 says, The man who had died came out. Can we read that again? The man who had died came out. Frankly, I want John to provide more detail here. The man who had died came out. Dead men don't walk out of tombs. So what does this reveal about Christ who stands before the grave and calls forth the dead and the dead come out? It reveals His great power over death. Many have suggested that if Jesus hadn't called Lazarus by name, all the dead would have come from their tombs. Such is Christ's power over death. Listen, He is the one you want at your funeral. And He's the one you need even now. In Christ, and in Christ alone, there is life today and forevermore. Which brings us lastly to the purpose of Christ. Jesus stood before that tomb with purpose, namely to set the captives free. And this freedom found in Christ is not just freedom from death itself, which is huge, obviously. It's also freedom, I love this, it's freedom from a life marred by death, which makes the miracle even more miraculous. You see that? When Lazarus came forth, I, I do, I just love this picture. When Lazarus came forth, he's still wearing the grave clothes, wrapped in linen strips. His face is wrapped in a cloth, cloth but Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. And, I, and, and I, it just seems so significant to me. I don't want us to miss the wonder of this moment. The command to unbind Lazarus and let him go, I think, is a picture of sorts that illustrates how Jesus frees us from the death that wants to find us. So it's not just that we're raised to the dead, from the dead, which is awesome, 
but we're actually freed from that death that defined us. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So in Christ, no longer are you defined by death. You've been raised with him to new life. It says, 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The grave clothes you once wore, so to speak, no longer befit your life in Christ. It no longer defines you. And so we're told repeatedly in the epistles, we're told that we to put off the old self with its practices and put on the new, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. That's the picture here. Jesus purposed not just to defeat death, but to bring newness of life. Not only to break the chains of sin, but to free us from a life of sin. And so in the raising of Lazarus, we see the life-imparting presence and uh, promise and prayer and power and purpose of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what does it all mean? Well, it means when Jesus declares to be the resurrection and the life, He's not speaking in abstract terms. He's saying that He and He alone can raise you from the dead spiritually, that sin and death need no longer imprison you, that you can be forgiven and freed from your bondage that that even though you die physically you can live eternally with God and when Jesus who is presently enthroned in the heavens as king of kings and lord of lords when he returns a second time his second coming he will raise even your body from the dead so that the physical will again unite with the spiritual as you are resurrected in glory to live with god and all god's people in the new heaven and the new earth where every trace of sin and death is removed forever as life is restored to its full and original intent. Hallelujah. This Jesus can do for you what he did for Lazarus. In fact, the raising of Lazarus, remember, is just a sign. So you know, every now and then, I feel it's necessary that we return to John's great purpose statement that's given to us in chapter 20, verse 31, where John explains exactly why he wrote this gospel. He says, these these signs are written so that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me ask you, would it change how you live? Would it change your approach to life if Jesus were to appear to you as he did to them? I think so. And that's essentially what John is saying here. That Jesus is appearing to you even now through his word, through this sign. He's saying that the same Jesus who stood at the tomb of Lazarus is standing before us today. He's saying this sign is intended to point you to Christ, to remind you that Jesus is alive and active in your life even today. And so I want to close with three brief applications. First, believe and behold the glorious Christ. Believe and behold the glorious Christ. Remember what Jesus said at the beginning. He said in verse 4 that the illness would not end in death, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. In other words, the main objective behind the raising of Lazarus was to glorify Jesus Christ as the divine Son of God so that you and I would believe in Him. That's what He told the disciples, remember, in verse 15, that He's glad He wasn't there so that, they, so that you may believe, He says. That's what He asked Martha in verse 26. He, he says, do you believe? That's what he prays in verse 42, that they may believe. So Jesus, we need to see this, Jesus makes a connection between our faith and his glory. In fact, to believe in this way, to believe is to behold the glory of Christ. Or, or we could put it this way, it's simply to glory in Christ. The glory in Christ is to rejoice in who he is, in what he's done, and in what he's doing even now, even in your life today. Therefore, listen, in whatever you're facing today, believe and behold the glorious Christ. Number two, trust God to perfect your faith. Trust God to perfect your faith. And here I'm just thinking about Martha. Martha was a dear friend of Jesus. He loved her very much. She loved him. She followed him. She served him. She trusted him. In verse 20, uh, 27, she made a strong and sincere profession of faith in him. Listen, Martha was a true believer. And yet, as we saw this morning by verse 39, she again doubted Christ and even questioned the wisdom of Christ. Well, what does this tell us? Well, if nothing else, it tells us her faith, hear this, her faith was present, but still very much in process. 
Although she knew Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, she didn't yet know the full implication of that. And in that way, she's just like us, or more accurately, we're just like her. Isn't it interesting that Jesus enlivens the faith in people who already have faith? People like Martha and his own disciples. And so what this teaches us, or the implication of this, is that there is much more of Jesus for you to know and trust. And just as he met Martha in her bouts of unbelief, so will he meet you in yours. Listen, the refinement of your the refinement of faith occurs not in your perfection, but in your imperfection. So be assured of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Therefore, trust God to perfect your faith. And then third and, and, and finally, allow grief this is a hard one. Allow grief to sanctify hope. Allow your grief to sanctify your hope. None of us want to suffer for obvious reasons. And yet most of us can point to times of suffering that have shaped us in ways that only suffering can. Truth is, try this as an experiment if you don't believe me. Truth is, if you ask people who believe in God when they grew the most spiritually, the number one answer will be in times of suffering. Why is this? It's because suffering has a way of stripping away all the other stuff that gets in the way. And as those things are stripped away, the suffering causes us to cling more closely to Christ, which in fact clarifies our hope in Christ. So maybe you're suffering a loss of some sort today. And like Martha and Mary, you're grieving the loss. Understandably so. But I want you to think about something. What if you're in that in-between period where you've called out to the Lord and now you're waiting upon the Lord. For them, it was four days, that four-day period. For you, it may be a day or a week or a month or four years. 
but you're in that in-between period where you've called out to the Lord and you're waiting upon the Lord. To you, it seems all hope is lost. It seems all hope is lost. But what if, as with them, God is actually using the season of grief to lovingly sanctify your hope in Christ? And our Christian hope is not just about what will be, but what is. It's future promise breaking into present reality. For wherever Jesus is, there is resurrection and life. Wherever he is present, there is hope eternal. And so I've said this to you before, and I know, I know this is hard. It's easy to say, it's hard to apply, but but let's not waste our suffering. Let's allow even our grief to sanctify our hope. In the end, the story of Lazarus is not about grief, but glory. It's not about death, but life. It's about our glorious hope in Christ, a living hope, For each of our todays and all our tomorrows, the reality of resurrection is among us and available to us. Set your hope on Christ today. Trust in Him and have life in his name. Amen. Father, we thank you for the time. And I look out into these faces and and I just sense that you are ministering to us even now in very personal, practical ways. And uh, we thank you for your loving care and not only grace that saves, but even sustains in these seasons of hardship and affliction and grief and suffering. And I I would ask, Lord, I just want to intercede on on behalf of these dear people that you would meet them in wonderful ways this morning comfort them, call them to yourself. Um, May you help us to, to indeed take solace and confidence and joy in your presence and in your promise and in your prayer and in your power and in the great purpose you have for our lives. Do this sanctifying work in us We pray. Amen.